0: This is Nicola Torbett, coming to you from the occupied Chochenyo-Ohlone territory, now known as Oakland, California. You're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, or SURGE, and specifically of SURGE faith. This is the podcast where we put the Christian lectionary scriptures for each week into conversation with the realities of our times. Realities of colonization, racism, and white supremacy, of patriarchy and misogyny, of homophobia, xenophobia, and ecocide. And we ask what it means, in this environment of dramatic inequity and violence, to follow a homeless, brown-skinned rabbi who lived and taught and ministered and died under military occupation in a tiny vassal nation of a mighty empire. Or more specifically, what does it mean to follow this Jesus when we are positioned as fully documented citizens of the empire? Part of the work we try to do with this podcast is to think about where we are positioned vis-a-vis our Bible stories. What role would I play in the story, in my case as a queer, white, working-class American citizen who uses she and her pronouns and presents as female, What role would you play, positioned as you are? What roles are we scripted by our social circumstances to play, and what roles do we wish to play, and how can we get from one to the other? How can we resist the conditioning that grooms us to take our place in support of the empire and instead serve collective liberation? Because we are part of Surge, we are primarily addressing white people with this podcast— We are white people challenging and supporting other white people as we take action to end racism and white supremacy, following the leadership of people of color. That said, all listeners, of course, are welcome, and we especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. So, Advent. We're here already, entering into this season of preparation for the arrival of Jesus, And this week, as we enter this season of anticipation, all eyes are on the southern border, where more than 6,000 Central American migrants have amassed in Tijuana, with more on the way. There is no question in many of our hearts and minds, as Advent begins, that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are in that caravan. On Sunday, we stood by horrified as reports came in of mothers and children being tear-gassed by border patrol. President Trump has ordered the military to the border and given military personnel the authority to use deadly force against the migrants. Tensions are incredibly high. Now we're going to set forth some concrete material ways that you and your congregations can help at the end of this episode. Material assistance is going to be crucial as this situation continues to unfold. But even beyond those material asks, there is deep spiritual work that white people need to take on if we are going to address the root causes of this crisis and the racism and xenophobia behind the U.S. response to it. And that is work that I think this week's apocalyptic gospel passage can help us with. It's the work of allowing life as we have known it to fall apart in the terrifying hope that something new and more just can arise from the ruins. That is the promise of Advent, and especially, I think, the promise of this week's text from Luke, chapter 21, verses 25 through 36. Let's turn there now. Here's the scripture. Again, this is Luke 21, 25 through 36. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, and that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The Word of God this week is full of foreboding, and also of promise. The world as we have known it will be shaken to its core. Earlier in this chapter of Luke, remember, Jesus has promised that not one stone will be left on another. The entire temple, in other words, the entire meaning-making system, the structures that hold the world in place for first-century Jews, all of this will collapse. It's hard for us to imagine, I think, what this would have meant to Jesus' listeners, the existential terror that these words would engender. It's as if he were saying to us that the U.S. democracy would collapse. It's that huge. Let's just take a breath and imagine what that would feel like. Then Jesus goes on to say, Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. What looks like utter collapse, utter defeat, is actually a sign that your redemption is at hand. Now Jesus is speaking here to oppressed people. It's important to note that. And in some ways, his words make more sense when we try to hear them from that perspective. When the existing systems have never worked for you, when they have systematically extracted from you the resources that you needed for your own survival— when they have destabilized your community and fostered desperation and violence within it, when they have so thoroughly depleted the soil through monoculture farming to feed the empire to the north, when they have torn your family apart, when those systems have so thoroughly stripped you of any right to resist them, then it is maybe easier to celebrate their collapse. Maybe even if that collapse is still profoundly unsettling. Even if you had hoped the systems could be reformed, that it wouldn't have to come to this, even if the systems were reassuring in their familiarity, despite the cost. It's complicated, our relationship to even those social systems that do not ultimately serve us. The same systems that may be slowly killing us are simultaneously sustaining our lives for the moment. This week's passage also follows on the story of the widow and her temple offering, remember? Jesus has clearly indicted the temple system for devouring widows' houses, even as the widow herself pays homage to it. I think maybe many of us feel this way about voting right now. In our current two-party system, with both parties held hostage to big money, we drop our ballot in because it supports the best thing we have at the moment but we are not deluded into thinking that it has anything to do with liberation. Not at this point. Even as people who see how the systems harm us, our relationship to those systems is complicated, and we may find ourselves working to preserve them long beyond the point when they no longer serve us. That's in many ways what this section of the Gospel of Luke is about. So Jesus is saying to his little band of oppressed people, Everything is going to fall apart. And these things have to happen. And although it is unsettling, it actually signals your salvation. Stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Yes, things are falling apart. And something new and so much more just and joyful is coming. That's the promise. To oppressed people. Because you know the last will be first, and so on. I'm trying hard to hear these words spoken to the asylum seekers crowded into camps at our borders. I'm trying to hear them spoken to the more than 6,000 mostly black and brown people living in tent encampments in my own city. I'm trying to hear them through the ears of my fellow queer and gender nonconforming community, which has systematically been excluded from the church as we have known it the existing institutions may collapse in order to allow something new and more just to emerge. And from that place, if we take these words as true, these words are good news and terrifying news simultaneously. But my question is, what are these words to those of us who are not oppressed people, or rather, because that category of oppressed people is so complicated and overly simplistic, what are these words to those of us whom the systems privilege? In the passage today, the privileged people, I think, appear as the others, those who will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. Much has been written about the fear-gripping white America as the demographics of this country shift and become browner. And certainly Trump is playing on those fears in his response to the migrant crisis. White people, and maybe white straight cisgendered men in particular, are terrified of what this might mean for them. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. The ruling powers will be shaken. Things are going to change. And if we are benefiting from the current arrangements, we have some things to lose, no question about it. I think part of the spiritual work for white people in this moment is to loosen our grip on all the things we are trying to hold together. For some of us, that's our institutional churches, for some, it's maybe nonprofits. I don't talk about it much these days, but for several years I led a nonprofit called Seminary of the Street. It was, we like to say, a training academy for love warriors. We offered workshops, retreats, and classes in things like alternative economics, nonviolent direct action, anti oppression, alternatives to gentrification. And for a couple of years I was able to fundraise enough to pay myself a small stipend. Which allowed me to do the work of running the organization more or less full time. And then something happened. I ran out of steam. When asked about it, I usually say I got tired of fundraising, and everyone gets that, of course. But I think the truth is more complicated. I didn't understand at the time what was happening in my spirit, I just knew that I couldn't do it anymore. That's when I started pet sitting and walking dogs to sustain myself, and Seminary of the Street fell quiet. For years, I have mourned this as some kind of failure, but looking back on it, I think maybe it needed to happen. As my own anti racist consciousness deepened, it became less and less tenable for me to be the white woman getting paid to run an anti racist, anti oppression nonprofit until finally I needed to let it drop. Seminary of the Street has been dormant now for four years. Except on a few occasions, when we've used it to provide fiscal sponsorship for organizing projects led by queer women of color, whose leadership I now follow. As a white person, I needed to step away from my leadership role so that new leadership and new vision could emerge from people better positioned to see what is needed. I'm not gonna lie, it was painful. It felt like failure. It felt like defeat. All this privilege and I just couldn't make it go. But looking back, I think the disintegration was necessary. It makes me wonder what else we are spending our energy preserving that doesn't need to be preserved. It makes me wonder, honestly, what needs to happen to this country with its heavily defended borders. This country is all I've ever known. I rely on it in thousands of ways I'm conscious of and thousands more that I've never even considered. To stop working to preserve it invites chaos, no doubt about it. But friends, I have to say that the chaos is already upon us. Here in Northern California, we are just emerging from two weeks of not- being able to breathe the air. <laughs> Deadly wildfires had filled the air with toxic smoke, bearing particles of incinerated electronics from the 13,000 homes that were destroyed. We couldn't breathe the air. And climate scientists tell us this is just the beginning. Climate disaster is not just coming, it's here. So, yes. This country, capitalism, white supremacy, these are all I've ever known. But in the face of imminent disaster, I find myself wondering, what else is possible? Jesus says that in the midst of the great collapse, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The Son of Man coming in a cloud, what does this mean? The reference, of course, is from Daniel, specifically chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, in which the Son of Man is given dominion over the whole world. But dominion, I mean, so much depends on who or what this Son of Man is who is given all this power and authority, right? I'm taken with the way Dr. J. Webb Mealy translates this phrase, Son of Man. In his spoken English New Testament, he translates it as the human one, the one who is fully human, fully humane, tender, compassionate, vulnerable, loving of all life. To this one, in other, one, in other words, to our fullest humanity, is given all dominion. And the scripture says, all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve that. What kind of world that would be. That's the promise of Advent. So I find myself wondering, what if white America could greet the migrants at our border as a sign that our redemption is at hand? That we will no longer be permitted to harm ourselves by lording it over everyone else. What if we really believed that Jesus, the human one, is in that caravan coming to teach us a new way of being? What if we went to every asylum seeker, and for that matter, every indigenous person, every black person, every person who has suffered under white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism and said, we need you. We've made a terrible mess of things, and we know we have no right to ask. But can you help us? Will you help us chart a path out of here? Who then might we become together? Change is upon us, my white friends and family. There's no turning back now. As my friend and mentor, Reverend Lenise Pinkard once proclaimed in a sermon, the world for which you have been so carefully prepared is being taken away from you by the grace of God. So if your projects are falling apart, if things seem to be fraying all around you and your life is making less sense by the second, lift up your head. Your redemption is drawing near. Amen. What are you being called to relinquish, to let go of? What have you been preserving that maybe you need to let fall apart or shift in seismic ways? What do you need to pick up? How can you be of service to the new consciousness, the new leadership that is emerging from the margins and even along our southern border? I know a lot of us right now are asking ourselves and each other what we can do about what is happening there. I have to be honest, when I heard about the tear gassing last Sunday, it was all I could do not to get on the next plane to San Diego. I wanted to be there, to do something, anything, to avoid having to feel this fear and grief. I had to hold myself back and ask myself who it would really be serving. If I, someone who barely speaks a word of Spanish, went to the border, would it really help anyone, or would it just ease my own conscience? Would it just allow me to be a part of something? I'm not saying no one should go to the border. It could be that going to the border will eventually be the right move for some of us, maybe especially those of us who are fluent in Spanish or any of the languages indigenous to the regions from which these migrants are coming. The New Sanctuary Movement is organizing a caravan to the border, 40 days and 40 nights of providing witness and accompaniment to asylum seekers as they enter the country. And that would be a good place to plug in if you do feel called to go. But there's also plenty to do at home. For starters, Families Belong Together and the National Domestic Workers Alliance are calling for a national weekend of action all across the country, December 1st and 2nd. You can find information on actions near you by visiting their website. I'll put the link in the transcript. They're also raising funds for on-the-ground work in Tijuana. We also need people to sponsor asylum seekers, including single adults and parents with children. Links to more information on all of these action steps can be found in the transcript. I challenge you to take one action this week and just see where that leads you. Thank you for joining me today. Let us know what you think and how your actions are going by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages, and be sure to tune in next week for another Liberation Word. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the Freedom Movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thanks so much, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.